Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter Diager. This is the monthly, uh, not monthly, but bi-weekly podcast now on Y2K and all the biography. And I'm doing this to put some history together, to give a backwards look uh, the way I think it should be done. It's not about hoaxes and frauds and everything else that went down. It was an actual real-life problem that we solved. Okay, Storm of Solutions. We're going to talk about the different ways that we went about solving this and made it pretty much a non-event at the end. If we look at Y2K, uh, think back to about the early 1990s, you're an organization and for some reason, whatever reason it is, you've decided you have a problem. You've either read an article or you've attended a presentation, you saw a news report, and that convinced you to go off and look at your systems. And when you did, you discovered that, yes, indeed, you were using two-digit years. And even if you didn't know whether or not that was going to cause a problem for you, it was a potential problem. Or, if you were lucky in a way, you actually had a Y2K problem. You had one in the 1970s or the 1980s or the 1990s or 1992. You had your first Y2K problem because one of your applications hit the event horizon. And I'll define that in a second. So you've decided that you're going to go and fix this, this problem that you found in your systems. A couple of problems. What exactly are you going to fix? If you look at a line of code and you see a date calculation and you know it's going to be incorrect, then sure enough, you know how to fix that line of code. But the reality is that you can't fix that line of code until you really understand what the program is doing. There were all types of situations where even variables were being used several times for several different purposes, and they might have been called date. Now, that's insane low-quality programming, but it happened. There were individuals, there was one particular case that we had a great deal of fun with on the Y2K mail list back in the day, and that was a whole bunch of programs that were discovered in an organization, and all the date fields were, were women's names. And it turned out that the programmer was using his girlfriend's names as the variable names for dates. Why? We don't know, but it made it incredibly difficult to figure out what was going on. So you're not just fixing a line of code, you're also fix fixing the entire program that that line of code is inside. And the solution you apply to a particular line of code is going to depend upon what the program is doing. I'll give you another example. Programs are part of applications. You can't start fixing a program until you know how that program connects with the rest of the application and so on and so forth. You can't mess with the application until you know the entire system of applications that are being operated in your organization. You have to look at the entire enterprise to see what types of solutions would be the best things to use given the way that your organization is working. The enterprise is also going to determine for you what you should actually be fixing and what you should be leaving out to hang, to, to just let it fail. We don't care. We have something else to focus on. And on top of all that, you have to look at external input. You can't fix a program and change it to a four-digit year if the internal input that you're getting from somewhere else, who knows where, is using a two-digit year. And by the same token, you can't decide that you're going to be four-digit years and you're going to send everything in four-digit years, if you're going to be sending that information 
out to a bank. Credit card companies ran into this problem. They have a credit card, and on the credit card, there's a two-digit expiration date. They can't decide to change the format of that credit card because the cash registers around the world won't be set up to accept a four-digit expiry date. They're working on two. That's what they expect. No matter where you're sending your data in your organization, no matter where you're sending it outside, you have to coordinate that effort with the person that you're sending it to, to say, we're going to be changing our data format. The data that we've sent you every week or every day or every minute or every second is going to change. You need to modify your system so that we can do that. So when we talk about fixing the Y2K problem, we're not just talking about fixing lines of code. The problem is much deeper than that. Remember back in the first episode, I spoke about everything being interconnected, intertwingled, to use Ted Nelson's word, and needing to grok to understand the entire system before you start messing with it. And if we didn't do that, then we wouldn't be able to, to implement the fixes that we did in the end. So first, first step in fixing is to understand what in the name of all that is holy is going on in your systems. Now, to put some meat on some of this, to give you a sense of how big the problem was, just for one organization, this is Union Pacific. In 1996, they did an inventory, and in one category out of several dozen categories of applications that they had, they had close to 9,000 different programs. Those 9,000 programs were more than 15 million lines of code. And if we assume just the, the lowest estimate possible, just assume that 1% of that 16 million, 15 million, whatever number, is date-related, that means we have to look at somewhere between 1 and 2 million lines of code. Now, how are you going to do that? Are you going to eyeball it all? That's a lot of reading. It's a tremendous amount of reading. And then deciding what you're going to do with each particular instance of the things that you find. And then we have to test it. And there's a big secret inside the testing in IT throughout the 1990s. Here's the deep, dark secret. We didn't test our systems for the year 2000. We simply did not create data sets to test our systems that use the year 00. Why? Well, we knew they'd break. We knew they wouldn't work. So why bother testing it if we knew, we knew what the outcome was going to be? But we didn't really tell anybody that we needed to get this thing done. So. The first thing we think of when we think of a two-digit year, because that's the way we've described the problem right from the start. Peter, what's the Y2K problem? Well, the problem is we use a two-digit year, and we assume the 19, we assume the century, and be, when we get into the year 2000, it'll be 00, zero et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When we hear that, ex solution, that problem statement, the first thing we think of, well, then just go ahead and expand it from two to four digits. And to be honest, I wish we could. That would have made sense. It was the correct way to fix the problem. It would have solved the problem for 8,000 years. <laughs> 
even I'm willing to admit that you know what? The fact that it's going to break 8,000 years from now, someone else will take care of it by then. Even I'm willing to say, that's not my problem. And it's not my grandkids' problem or their grandkids' problem either. Uh, I'm good with that. And there's only one problem. We can't. It, it was simply infeasible. We, we could not do this. We did, couldn't do it to our own systems, and we couldn't coordinate the changes throughout all of society because that's what it would have required. Credit card company, we're going to go to four-digit expiry dates. Every single maker of a cash register and of a card validator, just fix it. There were systems in there, in our organizations, where they hard-coded the century. Now, hard-coding for something that is actually variable has got to be one of the most egregious mistakes a programmer can make. When you entered in the year on the terminal, tick, tick, 89, the program would automatically say, okay, add 19 to the front of that. In other words, it wasn't the computer making a mistake. It, we were telling it to do that. It wasn't just assuming it was 19. We're, we're telling it, make it 19. Uh, if you're going to expand everything to a two-digit year and you forget that this hard coding is taking place, then what you get is 19, 19, 99 as a valid date when you type in 99. And when you type in 00, zero what you got was 19, 20, zero, zero, if you were learning how to do this properly. And on a number of reports on January the 1st, 2000 and onwards, you saw these strange concoctions of dates being printed out on reports and receipts and anything that was printed for the human eye, we were seeing these types of problems. Another example of why we couldn't just willy-nilly expand everything to a four-digit year, there was that EFT-80, this Electronic Funds 80 transfer code that all the banks use to move data from one bank to another bank, from one account to another account. That standard, EFT-80, has a two-digit year. I can't decide on my own as a bank that I'm going to change that from a two-digit year to a four-digit year. If I do that, any bank I send that transaction code to will not know what to do with that information. And if they try and do something, it could either just go, I, I don't understand that, and stop, or is going to do a calculation or some type of transfer that is just fundamentally wrong. So I can't on my own decide I'm going to change a standard. Another example of where changing everything to a four-digit year might not have made a tremendous amount of sense, I'm a small business. And I don't have an accounting piece of software. I have a spreadsheet. I have some templates in Microsoft Word that I use to send out invoices. How many invoices do I send out a month? Less than 10. And my standard right from the very, very first day that I started my business was to use a four-digit year, month, day, a client code, and then the number of the invoice like a numerical increasing number. And with that in place, I could access any one of my invoices. Now, you'll notice I used a four-digit year. Other people have got invoicing systems that didn't use the four-digit year. They used a two-digit year. 
you can't just go in and change that without going back to every single invoice record that you've ever created and modifying them all to go from a two-digit to a four-digit year. And when you do that, you're actually changing the invoice number. So if a client comes back and says, look, I have a query about this invoice. I'm typing in the invoice number, and it's not coming up in your system. It won't come up because you've gotten rid of it. You've changed it from a two-digit to a four-digit year. So this notion of expanding it while it is <laughs> my OCD is kicking in. It is the right way to do it. It is the perfect way to do it. We should have done it this way in the beginning, but we didn't. And it's really, really difficult to roll that clock back and say, okay, we're going to move to four-digit years throughout our entire system. The cost and the time it would have taken was another constraint. But the other one was just simply compatibility, backwards compatibility, uh, present time compatibility to everything else we're doing. Okay, so expanding wasn't really feasible. It, it was a good idea. Some of us did that. Some of the systems were fixed this way, but not every single one. And even when they were used this way, we had lots and lots of exceptions. There was a mini expansion uh, discussed quite often. Now, get rid, don't use a four-digit year. Just create a century of code, a one-digit century code, and add that to the front of the two digits. Now, that saves you some space. It is a quote-unquote correct solution in that if you did this, if you were able to do this, you would, again, create an 8,000-year solution. But the problem is it costs just as much as expanding to four digits. At the time it took was exactly the same. And again, you have all these incompatibility issues and backwards compatibility issues that you had with the, the correct way to do it. So mini expansion wasn't used often. It was used in some situations, but not very, very often. About, and this is the is most common, and it's actually one in the news today. Now, the reason you don't hear about windowing in newspaper articles and magazine articles and even TV reports and interviews was that windowing was rather difficult to explain. It would be faster and easier to tell a reporter, the way we're going to fix this is expanded from two to four digits. That they can understand. When you start getting into, we're going to use windowing, whether it's fixed or sliding windows, to solve this problem, their eyes glaze over. So this wasn't reported in the media very often, in the general public media. In IT magazines, we were discussing this all the time, including the fact that windowing, if it's not a sliding window, has a real problem and that is that it's a temporary fix. Now, the best way to start understanding how Windows worked was to take an organization that started in 1950. Let's assume that in 1960, they say, we're going to bring in a new accounting system or a loan management system, whatever. Now, let's assume that the largest, the longest loan this organization will give out is a 20-year loan. So if they're starting in 1960 and they're, they're entering in new accounts, the furthest date in that loan system will be 20 years in the future. 
So they're starting 1960. They'll have a closing date possibly in the in 1980. And since they only started the organization in 1950, there is no data in their system prior to 1950. That's an important thing to remember. It goes out as far as 20 years. If we advance the clock 10 years to 1970, they still have data in their system from 1970. Sorry, 1950. In 1950, they gave out a 20-year loan. In 1970, that'll still be on the books. And they'll be bringing new loans into the system that will have a closing date of 1990. But again, remember, it's important. There is no data in their system prior to 1950. They know that for certain. The data between 1950 and 1960 was hand-keyed into the system when they created the system in 1960. When they, when we advance the clock again to 1980, now we hit an interesting point. In 1980, if you're handing out a 20-year loan, that loan is going to come due in 2000. If you're using a two-digit year in your system, that loan is going to come due on 00. zero. It won't come up as 2000. It comes up as 00. zero. And now your system is making the assumption that that is 1900. That happens at the event horizon. When we advance it 10 years further, in 1990, we've got loans going out to 2010. But our system doesn't store 2010. It only stores the last two digits. So what happens is we now have data entering the system. We have no data prior to 1950. But we have this polluted data coming in at the end. We have 01 records, 02 records, 03 records as the year. If we know our data, we can look at this and we can use the fact that we had no legitimate data prior to 1950 and we can make the following assumption inside our program. We can say the following, if a year date is less than 50, then we know it's a 2049, a 2010, a 2020. That's called windowing. By the shape of our data, we know that it cannot be 1900. It must be a future date, a date in the 2000s. We use this in the vast majority of Y2K solutions that we implemented. The problem with it is the following. It is a kludge. We're making assumptions about data. It is data dependent. We can use a window of 20 in one system. We could use a window of 5 in another. We could use a window of 50 in another, but you can't use one single windowing for your entire enterprise. The systems don't work that way. We have gaps. Oh, and if you're using birth date and death date, when was he born, when did he die, then there is no window because people now are living more than 100 years. For, for those types of situations, we have to look for a different type of solution. Can't use windowing there.
The sliding window is um, a little bit of a twist. Uh, it's a little bit of tricky programming. And basically it says, look, our data bubble, if we use the idea of a bubble being the dates that are used for a particular application 20 years out, 20 years back, our data bubble is 40 years wide. If we have a system that only goes out five weeks and, and back five weeks, then we have a data bubble of only 10 weeks. If we're clever, every time we advance a year, we can move the window up. We can move it up by another one. First, this year our window is 20. Next year it could be 21. Next year it could be 22. Next year it can be 23. A um, bit of tricky programming, and heh, it gets trickier when we cross over the century again. <laughs> 3,000. Sorry, uh, it doesn't have to be 3,000. 2,100. When we cross over 2100, we have to make sure that that windowing, sliding window, isn't in effect anymore. We, we have to find a different solution because that won't work going over the 2100 again. So we have another century problem at 2100. I'm not going to be around then, neither are you, and uh, we'll leave that to our grandkids. It was much less costly, and it took a lot less time to implement the windowing solution. The problem, though, and you're seeing it in the news reports today, and we'll talk about it next episode, is that a lot of people forgot about their windows, which is what we've been predicting for a long, long time. Ever since we implemented the solution, we've said some people are going to forget. They're going to forget they have this windowing solution. And what you have is, well, I'll give you just two examples, because we'll talk about them more in two weeks. The first example is New York City parking meters. They're not accepting credit cards. They stopped accepting credit cards at the stroke of midnight on January the 1st, or if you want, December 31st, 2019. There are several thousand, um, more than 10,000 of these parking meters around the city. They cannot be fixed electronically. In other words, you can't send out a signal and fix the program. These things have to... Um, be modified, physically modified. It's an example of an embedded system program, basically a PROM, programmable, programmable read-only memory program that is in the meter, and it has stopped accepting credit cards. So for all those who say, well, you know, nothing happened in the year 2000, that's one example. Uh, at great expense, they're going to have to send technicians out to every single parking meter in New York City. Mm. That's great. There's another one that's actually much, much bigger than that over in Poland. They have cash registers, who's, which stopped working on January the 1st to 2020. Why did they stop working, Peter? Same thing. They can't handle the 2020. And this is another one of these situations where there are tens of thousands of things, these things around Poland. And they can't be fixed electronically. It wasn't set up that way. It's another from problem, programmable read-only memory. It has to be sent back to the shop to be opened up and a new chip put in so that it can work properly. There's an added complication to that, which we'll get to next time you hear me, episode four. Okay, let's continue. There was another really bizarre uh, solution to Y2K, and it has to do with this idea of the date bubble that I mentioned. And the notion that 
our programs worked perfectly fine as long as all the dates were in the 1900s. So your inventory program, if it wasn't looking out into the future, into the year 2000, worked fine. So the date bubble for a particular date, if it was all within the one century, the program worked fine. The problem occurs is when you have data from this century and that century. The calculations don't work. We've been over this. Okay. Some guy came up with the idea, don't know who it was, because this doesn't come up to, this isn't obvious. But what they said was, okay, the problem is that our data is spanning both centuries. And they said, well, what if we just subtracted 20 from all the dates and, and figured out what it needed to be, you know, using modulo 100? Yeah, I'm doing programmer speak now, but that's what this is about. So if I've got a program that's got a date in 1980 and a date in 2010, if I subtract 20 from both of those, the 80 becomes a 60, and the 2010, if I subtract 20 from it, becomes 1990. 1960 and 1990 are in the same century. I can do calculations on that. So what they came up with was, was this weird thing of time-shifting all the dates back. Take all the inputs to the program, deduct 20 from the years, fix it according to modular 10, 100 rules, do the calculation, and then fast forward the dates again, keeping the results of the calculation. This is called a wrapper or an envelope. The idea of this makes me nervous. It made me nervous when I first heard about it. It made me nervous when I tried to simulated on a couple of programs that I was using. I don't know if anyone used this. There was potential to use it, and it worked better if your date bubble, the data bubble, was really, really short, like about one week. Then you could play games. You move it back, and then you move it forward, and it sort of works. There's another problem with this, of course, though, is, again, it's temporary. When all your data is now legitimately in the 20th century, in other words, sorry, 21st, I stopped using it that way. When it's all the 2000 and, if it's all within that time frame, we really got to stop time shifting it back. Otherwise, we create the problem that we were trying to avoid. So this one has another um, temporary time period in which it works. Now, the very fact that I've never heard of a problem where this one wasn't fixed in time leads me to believe that this was more a solution in theory and no one actually used it. But it was out there. There was one other solution. I didn't even decide to put a slide on this one. And that is, if your time window for this cross-boundary programming difficulty was measured in hours, and there were some systems like that, um, baking bread or waiting for metal to cool or something. It was a, if it was a period of hours, the simple solution was stop processing over the boundary. In other words, shut down for a day. 
So you don't do any processing where one date is going to be in, in the 1900s and the other date is going to be in the year 2000 plus. Just stop working, shut down. And there were, I know, a couple of industrial type processes that actually use that. I said, rather than fixing everything, we're just going to take an extra day or two off. And that solved the problem. Uh, it was a temporary problem in a way, but with no negative repercussions except a decrease in productivity. If they had tried to fix it, it might have been a greater decrease in productivity. So they just bit the bullet and said, hey, we're shutting down for three or four days if that's how long it took. There was another solution, and some people took it, and that was this whole notion of fix on failure. We're not going to do what Peter says or what anybody else says. We're not going to go out and look for our dates. Uh, this isn't a very important system. That's key. This isn't a very important system. We're just going to let it run. And if it fails, the system will tell us. Now, I'm a fan of uh, hunting of the snark, uh, Lewis Carroll. And when you're hunting a snark, you know, hunting a snark's not too bad. But watch out. Every now and then, the, the snark's not a snark. He's a bojum. He's a different type of snark. And the bojums will kill you. The snarks you can handle. When you're fixing on failure, you're taking a risk. It's a calculated risk. And the risk is this. One, we're going to save an awful lot of time. We don't have to search for the dates. The system will tell us where things go wrong. And when it tells us where things go wrong, we can go in and fix it. Now, the risk you're taking is, what if it takes longer to fix than you can really afford? And that's the problem. Very few people consciously and deliberately chose this particular solution, although they did for certain types of applications, which we'll get into. Now. That's the, the, the technical fix-the-line-of-code type of solutions. And now we have to start looking at the enterprise and, and everything else that's happening. The first fix to Y2K was take the inventory, figure out what you have. And that is, much, that is as much a part of the fix as is fixing the lines of code. Now, there are three things you're going to try in inventory. You're going to try the inventory inventory all the input to your processes, whether it is manual input, existing data sets, external data sets, government data sets, all of this stuff, electronic devices, PCs, personal computers with, you know, do-it-yourself systems in someone's office, and they're piping that information into your mainframe computer or updating a file through some automated process that they've built but you may not even be aware of. There was one fellow, when they did their inventory, he came back and he reported to the mail list that we were running at the time that they had discovered six data centers employing a couple of hundred people that he, did, he was not aware of. He was the CIO of the organization, multinational organization, and they get discovered data centers data centers that in a way he was responsible for, but he had absolutely no clue they were out there until they did the inventory for Y2K. So first we identify and inventory all the inputs to our systems. Then we look at our processes, the, the systems that are going to manipulate that stuff to produce the results, the third part of this, input, process, output. Inventory everything in the input section, input, inventory everything in the 
is processing that information and then look at all the outcomes, all the results being generated by all those processes. The processes are all over the place. Some organizations had several hundred computer languages that were being used in their organization. They were using code that they had no programmers for. Programmers had died, retired, moved on, no longer there, but the code was still working. There were system emulators. One, I know a fellow, <laughs> he runs a program called APL, a programming language, which is in itself a program. He runs it on his iPhone. Now, this thing wasn't designed for the iPhone, but on the iPhone, he has an emulator for something. And on in that emulator, he has an emulator for something else. And in that emulator, he has an emulator for something else. And finally, at the bottom of the pile, there is this APL language. And it's been emulated by three or four different things on a platform that was never intended to run it. That type of stuff existed in organizations far more often than we would like to admit to. So the inventory is absolutely crucial. The, the final part of the inventory, like I said, is the output, the results of all the hard work that goes in and the processes and the data. The, the outputs, the results, the, the functionality of all these systems could be everything from reports, legal requirements, uh, feeding into other applications in other organizations. They could be managing a assembly line. They could be building products, whatever. That's part of the inventory. And a part of our inventory, too, is also the resources that we had available to us to start fixing this. Those resources were, the easy ones are money, people, and time. The more difficult ones to acquire were executive level support. Because we were going to be doing an awful lot of spending. And more to the point, we're going to be taking pet projects that the executives wanted us to deliver in the mid-1990s, and we're going to be saying, we don't have time for that. We're fixing a problem from the 1960s and 1970s, and your pet project is going to go on hold. We need the support of the executives to do that. And then finally, there has to be the sense of urgency throughout the organization that will put up with delayed projects so that we can fix this thing. All of this is part of what we had at our disposal to start solving this thing. Now, when we look at everything that's out there, the one thing that we're conscious of is that we have a finite amount of time. It doesn't matter how big our task is. It doesn't matter how much money we have to throw at this. It doesn't matter how much resources we have. We have a finite amount of time. And there was a sense right at the start that we did not have enough time to fix everything. So the first thing we did as good project managers is we started to prioritize. And the way we prioritize is from the results side first into the processes and then down to the data. The first thing we have to do is figure out which of the systems that we produce, that we run, accounts payable, billing, accounts receivable, inventory, logistics, warehousing, and so on, and so on, and so on, because it'll differ for every different organization. Which of those applications, functionalities being delivered by our systems, can we not live without? These are the mission critical. 
In other words, if we're if we're a legal company, lawyers, if we don't have billing and accounts receivable and banking, then we may as well stop doing business. We may as well stop writing briefs and you know doing tort analysis and all that good stuff because if we can't bill, there's no point doing any of that. So their mission critical might have been billing accounts receivable and banking. It might have been totally different for a trucking company, in which case the only thing that matters would be logistics and warehousing, inventory. If you're a bank, then you've got, well, banking, obviously, but you have telecommunications. Without telecommunications, you're not a bank anymore. So every different organization is going to have a different set of mission criticals. Once you've identified your mission criticals, you have to identify all the different applications that make those particular functions possible. So we identify them. And then we've got to roll it back and say, okay, to run those applications that we've just identified, which data sources need to be used in our consideration? Which are the ones that need to be modified if we're going to modify them? Which need to be accounted for if we're going to account for them? Uh, is anything going to change from the government? Have they decided to use a four-digit year rather than a two? If that's being fed into one of our applications and it's one of our mission-critical applications, we have to modify our system to accommodate the new data that's going to be coming down the line. After we've done the prioritization, we might still be in a situation where we simply don't have enough time to, to do everything we'd like to do. And then we really have to bite the bullet. And we have to look at something that the industry came to know as triage, systemic triage. Now, triage is taken from the medical industry, taken from, from places like MASH, uh, war zone surgery, and all that good stuff. After a major accident, uh, an emergency room uses triage all the time. And it works very simply from a medical perspective. People are uh, grouped into three categories. Category number one, even if we spend an inordinate amount of time on this particular individual, they will likely die. We don't have the time, so put them off in a corner, give them their morphine, and make them as comfortable as possible and leave them be. The other category is that person's only got a broken leg. Yeah, it's a compound fracture. Uh, stop the bleeding, put a tourniquet on it, put him in a corner and give him pain medication. He could last like that for a week. No big deal. Make sure he has antibiotics. But take care of him, put him to the side. And then we focus on the ones that we can save with a certain amount of effort. That's triage. Very, very difficult decisions. Well, we took that idea and we applied it to Y2K. We applied it to large organizations that had millions and millions of lines of code and tens of thousands of programs and applications. And the way we did it was, well, first off, we accepted as a reality that we had a finite amount of time. I mean, this is the one thing that makes Y2K so different from any other problem that we're facing today, whether it be pollution or climate change or anything else. We have a finite amount of time. We know exactly when the event horizon will happen for nearly everybody. Uh, some people will have event horizons that start real early. Banks had event horizons that started in the 1970s. Why? Because of 30-year mortgages. One of the things we don't discuss a tremendous amount when, Y2K, when we're discussing Y2K is the organizations that had really far out 
event horizons, the ones who were really, really dependent upon their systems working, started to work on this first. In late 1980s, a number of banks were working on this already. It wasn't that no one was doing anything. It was that there was a tremendous number of people not doing anything. But some of the major banks were working on this greater and lesser extents, but they were working on it. First thing we have to bite, first thing we have to accept is we have a finite amount of time. The next thing we have to accept is that while we don't have an unlimited number uh, amount of resources, we don't have an infinite amount of money, we don't have an infinite number of people to work on the project, we have some flexibility there. We can get all the resources we want, all the people we want, if we're willing to pay for them, but even that is somewhat constrained. And then the other thing that we have is how much work do we have? And that's variable because we can do less or more. We don't have to do everything. We could use that prioritization list that we had earlier and say, we're just going to focus on that to the exclusion of everything else. So what we did was we applied Pareto's law, the 80-20 rule. That's a super rule. It, it, it rules life. 80% of what you do, sorry, 80% of the benefits that you accrue come from 20% of what you do. Same applied to our systems. We might have 100 applications out there, but the, there's only 20 of those that are really, really important. The rest are cosmetic. They're fluff. They're nice to have. You know, the executive's um, dashboard that tells him or her how the organization is running, you know what? They can actually do without that for a couple of weeks, a couple of months maybe. Turns out that most people don't even look at them. They want them. They, they spend the money on creating them, but they don't use them for day-to-day -day decisions. So we can stop the dashboard, but we can't stop billing. We can't stop receivables. So what we did was we said, what are the mission-critical systems uh, those are the ones we're going to spend time on. The rest of them, we're going to try and identify them into two categories. One, uh, we don't need this at all. If it stopped working today, no one would really notice. So we're not going to spend any time on it at all. Will it crash? Eh, maybe. And here's where we could use the um, fix on failure. If it's not really that important, run it. If it dies, can you fix it in 10, 10 minutes, an hour, a couple of hours, a couple of days? If you can do so, if it's worth enough. Uh, if it crashes and, oh, my God, it's going to take 16 months, forget it. We don't need it. And then there's the middle section. These are applications that are useful. We use them in our decision-making process. But we could do without them for six months, even a year, if we absolutely had to. Triage, I think, for many organizations was the one thing that helped them manage this task. There were other things that we could do, and they, they came, became aware of them through the triage, because now we're really trying to grok, understand what our systems are doing for us. There were systems that we got to fix it. This is the mission critical one. And now we can start asking some really telling questions. Do we have to fix the entire system or just one or two functions of the system? Most systems give you more than we need. If the things we need are the really important ones, can we just fix that? 
without worrying about the rest? Sometimes the answer is no. You sort of have to have everything for it to make sense. Other times, yeah, we could just, if we just have this single function, then we can survive. Once we've decided on the particular applications we're going to fix and which functions we're going to focus on, now we can start asking the question, which of those technical solutions, you know, those line code changes I mentioned at the beginning of this hour, which of those are we going to deploy? Are we going to use people to look at the code and fix it, or are we going to start using the technology that was coming up, the scanners and the parsers and the identifiers and the smart code changes and all the rest? Are we going to send it out to someone? I'm not a great fan of outsourcing. I believe we should hold our work to ourselves, but outsourcing works. A lot of people use it. First question, is it going to be local to us so we can keep an eye on it, walk down the street, say, how are you doing? Or is it going to be off in some faraway country where if we want to keep an eye on it, we actually have to send a team over there to watch the project and to report back? If we're testing it, we're going to be testing it in-house, maybe in a partition on our mainframe, or do we have a whole different standalone system that replicates our existing mainframe so that we can do testing as best we can live, maybe even with live data streams going through it to make sure it's producing the right results, or are we going to send it to someone else? Again, there were people out there making a good bit of money creating off-site testing centers. And then the question that we never get away with in Y2K is, what if it fails? What if we're not ready? What's our fallback position? And I'm not going to try and answer that here. For every single application, there was going to be a different answer. If it failed, what are we going to do? Every single major organization on the planet on December 31st, 1999, had teams on standby. Luckily, most of them reported back is that you know, we just sat there uh, eating pizza and drinking coffee and stuff, and nothing happened, which is the best possible news. But what was your contingency plan? Everybody had a contingency plan. Some of it was just <laughs> thoughts and prayers. I get it. For some of them, it, it had to work. There was no fallback position. It had to work. We'd have the teams ready to do what they can once it failed. And remember, fix on failure. It tells you exactly where the problem is. It points to it exactly. The system comes back and says, hey, line 576, we have this data exception. Or the data is coming out and you say, okay, that particular thing is coming out negative. It should be coming out positive. Where is that particular bit of data being generated? What's calculating it? We can know that because we've got the documentation now. We know our systems now. We grok them much, much better than we ever had before. One of the things that happened in 2001, September, after the fall of the towers, a lot of the media got on board and said, you know, the only, one of the main reasons that people were able to recover so quickly from 9-11 was that Y2K made it possible. Y2K made sure that people had off-site test testing centers, off-site plant processing plants. Uh, they knew their data. They, they knew their systems. They had fresh documentation. And they wanted to say that that was collateral benefit for Y2K. They're right. It was collateral. But it wasn't the reason why we did it. We didn't do Y2K so that we could get better documentation. Better documentation was a unavoided, unintentional outcome of what we were doing. One of the things that happened quite often 
is that people would look at a particular application and they'd go, oh my God, there is no way we're going to be able to fix this in time. Or they made a slightly different calculation. They said, you know what, we could spend $10 million on this particular application to get it working for the year 2000. But if we went out and spent $5 million on a brand new off-the-shelf vendor product, then we could drop this one and just bring in a brand new one, which is what we did. Quite often, inventory systems were replaced. Accounting systems were brought up to speed. People using legacy systems that they'd been wanting to get rid of for, for ages, now was the time. One of the claims made about Y2K is that there was a lot of unnecessary money spent. Hey, well, yes, there was. Some IT managers took this as an opportunity to get the new systems that they've been begging for for the last 10 years, and no one said yes, and no one had the budget, and now they went in and said, maybe they lied. Now they said, this is going to cost us $15 million to fix, but we can have it up and running in six months for less than five. And senior management said, okay, go ahead and do it. And that's what we did. A lot of new systems were purchased. A lot of things like SAP were brought in to replace systems that would have taken far much too much effort. And the other reality, too, is you buy an off-the-shelf product, you're getting a lot more features for your money than if you modify an old system that's been hanging around in COBOL for the last 30 years. So we replaced a lot of systems. That was one of the cleanest solutions. And I'll admit, if I'd had the money in an organization and I could replace an existing system with a brand new one, I would have done that nine times out of ten. Bring in clean systems. The systems that we have, the technical debt that they incurred, the legacy systems that we were dealing with, babysitting from one month processing to the next month, should have all been replaced earlier. Now is the opportunity, and that's what they did. Some people went overboard. Some people went into management and said, our PCs won't work. We need 5,000 new PCs. Why? Y2K. Okay, go out and buy it. Did they have to do that? No, they didn't. They took advantage of the situation. Uh, was it good or bad? You ended up with good systems. Was it unnecessary? Could you have done without? Eh, possibly. But this, you know, to be frank and to be honest, this is what a lot of people did. We spent money we didn't need to do didn't need to spend to get better systems. Uh, there was another one which were, you know, we were fond of. <laughs> if a system doesn't, it wasn't going to work in the year 2000, and it really was, that, was not that important, just get rid of it. Just delete it. Stop running it. We're not going to worry about fixing it. The testing of everything was different. IT tests systems. That's what project managers do. That's what we all do. We put new things in. We go out there and we test them to make sure they're working. But because of the fact that if we had tested our systems in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s with zero, zero data, we knew it would fail, so we didn't. What that meant was, come Y2K remediation, we had to create data sets, testing data sets that we had not created before. And that wasn't exactly easy or obvious. You have to figure out what are all the types of calculations that would fail when new 0001 type of data started entering the system. And we had to create test situations for that. 
and then bring it up to speed and run it at production speeds, production levels. That took time. And it was something, if we'd been doing the testing right in the first place, it wouldn't have been that big a deal. But we had to test everything. It had to work on the day. There were some other th problems that we had to fix. One of the major problems was that simply we didn't have the resources. Now, two things happened with our programmers, our programming staff. Quite often, people were given closing bonuses. If you stay on till the end of the project, we will give you closing bonuses. I, I heard bonuses of up to $100,000, more than a year's salary for some of these folks. And the, the rationale was really very simple. The market was heating up for these resources. They could basically go off and get a job anywhere they want, and they would get more money than they're currently being paid. They were at a premium. So to keep them on board, we upped their salaries. We paid them bonuses to stay to the end. If you left early, you didn't get that bonus. And people signed contracts, and we, we got it done. Uh, people were also going out learning COBOL. It's supposed to be an easy language, but with the different variations out there and programming standards, it can be rather painful to read, especially if all the date fields are the names of girls, uh, women. Uh, it can be rather uh, difficult to figure out what is what. There was an entire industry generated to aid in Y2K remediation. Uh, we had workflow analysis. Stick a program in, or rather let it loose on your entire system, and it'll produce a flowchart for you. Data analyzers. Tell me what my data is like. What does it look like? Well, you know, where are the data bubbles for this particular application? We had tools to do that. We had tools that say, look, this is what our dates look like. Here are the types of calculations that we're aware of. Um, if you see this type of calculation, then I want you to recode it in the following format. So we're using templates. Well, by the way, if you find a date and it doesn't match any of the existing code formats that we've given you, highlight that for us, interrogate us as a user. We'll put in the new information and then redo the scan. In other words, these are rather sophisticated tools. And they're all types of tools. I'm not going to list them all out. There's no need. Would you still be using some of these tools today? Yeah, some of them are still out there. We use them for other applications now. Uh, will all of them still be used? No, they won't. Data migration aids, we use those all the time. They got rather sophisticated during the Y2K years. And this is one of the positive outcomes. It's not discussed much, but there are a whole bunch more tools for programmers and application software and all that type of stuff than we ever had before Y2K. The problem with offshore and outs offshoring and outsourcing was was always the risk involved, but it's no different than any other project that we hand to people, except the hard deadline. If you're doing outsourcing, if you're handing your work, your system development and remediation to someone else, a third party, there has to be a really tight contract for a wide variety of reasons, and. Keeping an eye, you know, the, the weekly updates, the monthly updates to make sure that they're on track and trusting that what they're telling you is actually accurate was really important. But there's nothing fundamentally different here than 
any other outsourcing project that we might embark upon, except the what if. What if once we've done the outsourcing of the code remediation and it comes back three months before January the 1st, 2000, and it doesn't work, now what do you do? Well, part of what you do is you don't have a deadline of three months before. You have a deadline of one year before. If you started early enough, you can do that. Summary, we weren't fixing lines of code. That, that was part of it, but it was much more complicated than that. Everything was an intertwingled mess. You couldn't touch one thing without taking something else into account. And that was the difficulty in Y2K. Understand exactly what it is we were going into and messing about with to make sure that on the day it would work. Next episode, episode number four. I was going to leave this right to the end, or rather one of the later episodes of this podcast series, but given what's been happening over the last couple of weeks, with all the 2020 failures, I figured it's about time that we actually talked about all of the Y2K problems that occurred. The ones that occurred back as early as 1970, the ones that happened in the 80s, the 90s, the ones that happened because we were trying to fix things and we were introducing new errors, the ones that happened on January the 1st, 2000 and beyond a little bit, and then we had a quiet period, and now they're all popping up all over again. So what we're going to do in the next episode is take a look back, far, far back, before Y2K even became a thing, the ones that happened as we're hitting the event horizons really close to January the 1st, and then, of course, the failures of all the windowing systems that haven't been corrected. Now, as I've said before, this is a 10 to 12-part monthly podcast, uh, bi-monthly, and it's in two streams. The, the free stream is on iTunes and Podbean. That's the audio part. The premium content is stored elsewhere. Now, what do you get in the premium content? What you get in the premium content are the PowerPoint presentations that are behind the audio. So sometimes I'll be saying something. It won't be 100% clear with just audio. The visuals will make it easier. The other part of the premium content will be the interviews that I'm doing with various people like John Koskinen, Roger Clausen, who's on the line today, and other people. I'm even going to be introducing, uh, rather interviewing, some journalists, some of the media who worked on this and reported on this. I want to give their views of what it was like reporting on something that they weren't really expert in and how they came to their conclusions about what this was all about. All of that premium content you can find at the following location, www.vimeo.com slash on-demand slash Y2K. Everything there is easy, except for the Vimeo part, V-I-M-E-O, www.vimeo.com slash on-demand, O-N-D-E-M-A-N-D, on-demand, slash Y2K. And, of course, you can contact me at pdager, P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R, at technobility, T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y dot com. Folks, I want to thank you for listening in. Do me a favor, like every podcast needs this. Some reviews in prominent places on social media would be great. 
point people towards it if you're enjoying it, if you're getting something, if it's raising questions. Oh, and if you have questions, by all means, get them to me. Use my email address. Send me the questions. If I get enough of those, I'll batch them into groups of six, and then we'll have extra content that will be available on iTunes and Podbean. Thank you very much for attending. Join me again in two weeks when we start talking about the problems that did occur, despite the notion that nothing occurred. Have a good night, folks. Be good.